Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. Last Sunday, we explored the twists and turns of storytelling. This Sunday, we're going to twist and turn to a whole new level as we boldly approach the heart of story's magic. Its ability to use conversation as a way of setting the entire world on edge and confounding everything we thought we ever knew. In our gospel reading, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. Is it any wonder that many ancient Romans believed that the early Christians were cannibals? The sixth chapter of John's Gospel is known as the Bread of Life Discourse. It begins with the feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And it continues with Jesus walking across a lake in a strong wind. By the way, this image, while really rather unfamiliar and mysterious to us, would not be at all strange in many Buddhist traditions where the image of someone walking on water, an enlightened one, is all about traversing not the toils and terrors of a lake in a storm, but the toils and the terrors of the illusions thrown up by the human mind. And in the world of mythology, a crossing over water symbolizes the journey from this world into the next. And so in ancient Egypt, there's that wonderful phrase, the night sea journey, which the sun, when it sets every evening, crosses the night sea so that it can be born again. Now John's Gospel lulls us not to think this way by reporting all of this archetypal material as ordinary daily events. But the storyteller knows that they are anything but. So when they get to the other side of the lake, Jesus begins to teach that he is the bread of life. And he says, as he did this morning, he says, eat me. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter next Sunday, we hear, because of this, many of his disciples turned back from him and no longer went about with him. During the summer of year B, we spend five weeks on this one chapter of John's Gospel. And to make us really think about what Jesus is saying, two of the most difficult sayings in chapter 6 are repeated twice, ending one week and beginning the week that follows. And here they are. First one, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, if you're a skilled reader of John's Gospel, you'll know that we've been prepared for this in chapter 4, which is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus hints that he has access to living waters, and he tells his bewildered disciples who come back with lunch that he doesn't need lunch, that he has food from the Father that you do not know about. The second difficult saying is, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This leads Presbyterian minister Walter W. Bubar to muse in this week's issue of the Christian Century. What was Jesus thinking? He had such a great following before he spoke. He just fed 5,000 people, and they were ready to sign up and become his disciples. This would have been the time to use his best preaching material, toss out a few beatitudes, or tell a couple of stories about farmers or sheep. Jesus could have had the biggest church in town. But instead, he launched into a ridiculously long, convoluted discourse about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which, let's face it, sounds creepy. And when he was confronted by raised eyebrows and expressions of bewilderment and a barrage of questions, Jesus didn't let up, but just kept getting more and more obscure. No wonder his followers started grumbling. This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Many turned away and went home, never to be seen again. And Jesus let them go. Western civilization has very little patience with mystery and even less patience when a leader loses followers. Rather than unravel the puzzle of the Gordian knot, Alexander the Great sliced right through it with his sword. Likewise, most Christian commentators like to cut right through difficult texts and take us straight to the answer. So, moving from Bubar to the Harper Bible Commentary, we are told that this whole teaching about the bread of life is a reference to Christ's saving death on the cross and the sacrament of the Eucharist. Otherwise, the text says, the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood is unthinkable. We have creepy, we have unthinkable, and everybody wants to get away from what Jesus said into something else. Now, I'm not going to disagree with the commentary because, indeed, this whole chapter is deeply Eucharistic. But I have to share with you that this answer doesn't help me, Carol Luther, very much. If eating the flesh of the Son of Man is creepy, so, in my mind, is crucifying God. I live in a culture that glorifies violence. And if I can say anything with certainty about Jesus, 
It was that Jesus did not glorify violence. Indeed, he was very subversive about violence, taking its images and turning them in his teachings into something else. Which leads me to consider that we're jumping to conclusions when we say that in today's readings, Jesus is saying, kill me. He isn't. He's saying, eat me. And there may be a difference. I want to share with you a story that I heard about the Jungian writer uh, Robert Johnson, author of the books He, She, and We, if you know them. He was doing a talk, and one of the members of the audience was a young man who was in such despair, he said, it feels sometimes like I have no choice on this earth but to kill myself. What can I do? And Johnson paused and considered the young man's question, and his response was, sure, go ahead, kill yourself. Just don't harm your body. In God's kingdom, those kind of disconnects are possible. So, when faced with my own discomfort before the teaching that I must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, I want to begin not with an answer, but by letting my discomfort be my teacher by letting this teaching just be what it is, which is to say, impossibly strange. Now again, this is a problem of me a Westerner. Non-Western cultures do not have a problem with teachings like this, because when faced with the unthinkable, they do not solve, but meditate. There's even a whole tradition of unthinkable sayings in Zen Buddhism, they're known as koans, which is translated into English very often as parable, and a great many of them are parables. And a koan is an unanswerable riddle, such as, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or a saying, if you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. Now these are not meant to be acted on. They're given as gifts by the teacher to the student, and the student goes off and meditates on the saying for years. The student takes the teaching into his or her daily life and work and says, how does this influence, how does this color what it is that I do? And sometimes after nearly a lifetime, they go back to the teacher and check in and they never have it. And by the time they finally get it, however, it's just as unshareable as the original koan was, because the teaching has been transformed into a very personal message from the universe that applies just to me. And this too is a kind of koan, because how can the same thing be at once universal and two, intensely personal? And I think that that's what the lectionary in year B is trying to give us a taste of, by spending five weeks on Jesus saying that I am the bread of life and Jesus saying, eat me. But honestly, five weeks is nowhere near enough time to get to the bottom of this. And most of us, very Western, result-oriented, we gotta give you something, preachers, either do what I've been doing, which is to preach around it and do the Old Testament for weeks and weeks and weeks, 
or in the case of a very creative one, on the last Sunday of all this bread teaching, she handed out a really good bread recipe to her entire congregation and talked about the meditative joys of kneading dough. And as much as I love all of this, I don't think that it really helps get to the bottom of what Jesus is doing, going out there and telling people to eat him. So, Jesus says, eat me. And I go to the world of storytelling. And I am reminded of what creative writing professor Greg Saras wrote about storytelling. And he said, it is an art generating respect for the unknown while illuminating the borders of the known. Respect for the unknown, borders of the known. And it's pretty easy to see that at some level that's exactly what Jesus and John's gospel is doing, is taking something very known, bread, life, God, but then also illuminating something very unknown. God's mind is not my mind. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says God in Isaiah chapter 55. You and I, we may be created in the image of God, but Jesus cautions us, we probably shouldn't try and return the favor by assuming that God is in the image of us. However, I have to give you a basic rule of storytelling and the interpretation of stories. However I interpret a story for you is going to say every bit, if not more, about me than it is about the story that is before us. And I gave you a taste of that last week when I shamelessly revealed myself as a feminist by having the cry of Tamar be the entire hinge on which the David story hangs. You're not going to find that just anywhere. And we also today, we had our Presbyterian pastor, Walter W. Bubar, who is playing on his assumption or what he thinks our assumption is that the whole point of Jesus' ministry was to convert people, to build a big church, to get followers that would never leave. And so he thinks that we're going to be very, very shocked that Jesus lets all these people go. And I'm sure you've been in the Bible studies that I've been in where, oh, these poor people, they are lost forever. What is going to become of them who have rejected Jesus? Now, again, that's a Western problem because we're into, you know, numbers. In the East, they would not have a problem with that at all and say maybe, even as this teaching is about understanding who Jesus is, it's about letting go of my preconceived notions about Jesus. It's about letting go of my attachment to the fact that Jesus is going to be this way that I want and not some other way. And for all we know, they went and thought about it and came back. The scripture quite reasonably does not tell us. And as we move where I have the basis for what I just said is that if you move forward in John, you come to my favorite quote, in all of scripture, which is, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you 
free. Now that saying has given me more courage than anything Jesus has ever said, but being set free is really all about letting go. And in the teaching itself, Jesus is saying that it's horrible to be a slave because you are always enslaved to the will of the master. And like a good spiritual teacher, once Jesus says that, he plants the question in our mind, is what, am, what is my master? What ideas, what concepts, what do I hold on to that keeps me from being free? And maybe Jesus saving death as well saves us by confounding our images of what we mean when we say that God is all-powerful. Remember way back when power is, perfect, power is made perfect in weakness? Well, as an old Jewish folktale says, you never know. Well, has any of this brought us any closer to what Jesus means when he says, eat me, drink my blood? I don't know. As a preacher, you know, I'm expected to know what Jesus is talking about all the time when I get up here, but I'm going to have to confess to you that outside my love of the sacraments and my sense that a profound tension existed back then and still exists between contemporary culture and what God wants us to be, I'm not entirely sure what Jesus does mean when he tells me to eat his flesh. But fortunately, I'm an Episcopalian. And one of the wonderful things about being us is we're not expected to know. We are one of the few Christian denominations that absolutely revels in the mystery and grows by sharing the mystery together. But since God has asked me to be a teacher, I have to leave you with two little ideas that you can take with you because you're going to be here with the same passage again next week. And so I'm going to leave you with two little observations that you can take out the door. The first is that a lot of primal culture-shaping mythology is about food. Eating is a sacred act. It is at the table that we build community and as the wise Alaska natives I hang out with remind me, you have to love the animal that is going to become your dinner. So eating is an act of love. And I think Jesus is asking us, what nourishes us? Do we love it? And this whole idea about food may be the greatest contribution that French structuralist anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss ever made. His first book on the science of mythology was called The Raw and the Cooked. And he showed us quite definitively that many, many myth cycles were all about what it is safe to eat and what is not safe to eat and how cooking can transform everything, making what is not safe to eat into what is safe to eat. So think about two things from our tradition. One is that the Eucharist is a great act of transformation through prayer. And number two, that in Genesis chapter two, we were so eager to get to the answer. We've had this problem for a long time that we took the fruit of the tree of knowledge before we were really ready to understand what that was all about. And always when Jesus is giving us a difficult teaching, I think he's saying, are you ready? 
Are you ready to go where I'm going to take you? And if we're not, he says, go on. You can leave. I'll be here. Number two. In a lot of ancient literature, sacred words were literally seen as food. And if you love the prophets like I do, you'll always run into these images of eat this scroll. So Ezekiel eats a scroll with the word of God. The tongue of Isaiah is touched with a coal given by a fiery cherubim. In the book of Revelation, an angel hands John, John a scroll, which is honey to his lips and bitter in his stomach. So there is this interesting analogy between words, how we frame reality, and food. And I take you back to the beginning of John's Gospel, which is where all of this is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So at the very least, we're being encouraged to eat our words. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, as that collect in the Book of Common Prayer tells us just before we hit Christ the King in November. Cherish your stories. Don't be afraid when they become difficult, contradictory, sad, or outrageous. God seems to be very expert at what confounds us the most, for he sent his only son, this too in John's Gospel, to confound us with God's love. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.